Hello, friends and adventurers. Our podcast has been supported for months now by Misty Mountain Gaming, and they're now rewarding you, our listeners, with savings on all their fine D&D products, such as metal dice, stone dice, glass dice, miniatures, adventures, dice trays, and more. You can use the code TWINS10, that's T-W-I-N-S-1-0, to save 10% on all purchases made in their online store at MistyMountainGaming.com. Every code redeemed helps support Steven and I, and encourages us to make more and better content for you. So be sure to use code TWINS10 whenever you're buying premium Dungeons & Dragons dice and gear from our good friends at MistyMountainGaming.com. Okay, on with the show. Welcome back, listeners, DMs, friends, and fellow adventurers to another episode of Bardic Twinspiration, a topical D&D podcast where my brother and I discuss all things D&D. Today, we are going to be finishing up our discussion of the races that have been presented to us in the playtest material that has been released so far for 1D&D, the next edition that is coming out for the game that we all know and love. As always, my name is Steven, and I am joined by my brother, the D&D wannabe. Hey, it's me. My name is Rob, and I am excited to talk about some new content for the species for 1D&D. It's been pretty samey up to this point. There's been some stuff that's worth talking about, but today we're going to be talking about a brand new race for 1D&D, as well as a substantially changed one that was not available at the beginning of 5th edition's tenure. In part one of this series, we covered a lot of very familiar ground. Humans, elves, dwarves, halflings, and gnomes. While, as Rob said, there were some distinctions, they all felt very recognizable to their 5th edition incarnations. But with the five races we have for you today, that may not hold true. So Rob, let's not waste any time, let's jump right in and you can tell me what has changed about the orc race. So the orc did not really come along until Monsters of the Multiverse. It's one of the newer races to 5th edition by comparison to the ones that we've been talking about lately. And perhaps because it was one of the newer releases, nothing has changed. I mean, actually, actually nothing has changed about the orc for one (laughs) D&D. The particular wording has changed to be updated and consistent with the new nomenclature, but It's the same. This is the orc from 5e. All of that hype about talking about new things today, and here we have something that is not new at all. It's exactly the same. (laughs) If you you like the 5th edition orc, you'll love this. If you didn't like the 5th edition orc, you will not love this. I liked the 5th edition half orc a little better than the orc, so I'm a little sorry to see this here and not the other. Or at least a little more crossover between what those two races in 5e had to offer. But... It's here. I guess I'm happy that it's here. For those of you who are unfamiliar with the 5th edition orc who haven't had a chance to look up Monsters of the Multiverse yet, but still want to know what your options will be in 1D&D, 
The orc is a six to seven foot tall medium humanoid with a walking speed of 30 feet, as everything is. Apparently that walking speed is just standard in one D&D now. They live on average to be about 80 years old and have a couple of racial features as well. I guess, are they still racial features if we call it a species now? Uh, I digress. Special traits, I think, is the way the first one D&D drop termed it. There we go. Special traits. First up, we have dark vision. It works exactly the way that it does for all the other races and extends just as far to a maximum of 60 feet. Their powerful build makes a comeback. They are considered to be larger than they physically are when determining their carrying capacity for pushing, dragging, or lifting. Basically, you know, strong stuff. We also have the Adrenaline Rush feature, which is strange and unique, but good. It states that when an orc takes the dash action, they gain a number of temporary hit points equal to their proficiency bonus, and they can do this a number of times equal to their proficiency bonus per long rest. They can also take that dash action as a bonus action, which is a nice little nod to the aggressive trait from the monster manual that orcs get to dash towards their targets as a bonus action. The consistency is nice to see. And finally, the orcs boast relentless endurance. This is an iconic feature that states that when an orc would fall to zero hit points, but not meet the instant death threshold, they drop to one hit point instead. One time per long rest, an orc is practically unkillable. All in all, orc's good. Another case of that don't fix what ain't broke, I think they got a fairly good finger on the pulse of what people wanted from orcs, and they're delivering it here. This is kind of putting me off balance. I'm not used to you feeling so positively about things so consistently in a row. I'm not used to me feeling positively about things, but the fact is there's, there's very little innovation here. And if you're handing me what I'm familiar with, I'm generally okay with it because I'm familiar with it. I know how to build it. I know how to work around it. I know its strengths and weaknesses. I'd say that these races were comfort food for you, but I feel like comfort food is a sore spot <laughs> given the, the fasting thing. You know what? The best thing about the orc in 1D&D is that we don't have to spend a lot of time talking about it and we can move on to some genuinely new stuff. And so I guess let's do that. Let's go ahead and move on to tieflings. Tieflings, as we all know, are the race with the infernal legacy. And in 1D&D, that is still true, although it's that with extra steps. First off, they're humanoid, as all these races are. They have 30-foot movement speed, as all of them do. They have an average lifespan of about 30 years. And here, Rob, here it shows up again. Just like with humans, a tiefling can be either a small or medium creature. This is the first one we've seen since human that has had that option. So the question is, why? Why? Why do tieflings get the option to be small or medium, but elves and dwarves don't? Was there a long line of players dying to play three-foot-tall tieflings? <sighs> I don't know, like, you want to be an imp or something, I guess? <sighs> but when you say that a dwarf has to be a medium creature, a dwarf, but a human and a tiefling can be small. A weird place to draw the line. I know, yeah, it is. I, I think they should all be okay to be small creatures. Like, why some and not others? Either pick it for all of them, or leave it open for all of them. <laughs> it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Pick a lane, wizards. Pick a lane. Okay, yeah, I know we beat that horse to death in the first episode, but I mean, just here, we have to talk about it when it shows up because it's so odd that it, it shows up again. It, it's a fresh wound, yeah. It should just be there. Anyway, we move on. Hey, guess what, Rob? It's another species with dark vision. Yep. Boy, there sure are a lot of those. <laughs> nothing nothing new to see here, not even in the dark. The majority of the species presented for 1D&D have dark vision. 
the same was true in 5e. Being able to see in the dark conceptually, to me, makes you special, right? Like, that's a thing you have, that's a talent you've got, but statistically speaking, percentage-wise, you're going to have dark vision, and not having dark vision makes you the anomaly. It makes you the liability in the party. It almost feels like they should state when making your race, you're going to have a base walking speed of 30 feet, and you're going to have dark vision. And you know what? Instead of telling you when you have dark vision, we'll just tell you when you don't. It's it's almost easier to list the emissions, the oversights, because it's more the rule than the exception. I mean, it literally is. It literally is. All right, but we digress. We digress a lot. Dark vision. It's something the tieflings have had. It's something that you want a tiefling to have. Let's skip over Fiendish Legacy for a second. I'm sure you can tell what's coming if you listen to our first episode with the elves. But Otherworldly Presence is a free cantrip. All tieflings know how to cast Thaumaturgy. No swapping out. You can cast it with different ability scores, but there's no attack rolls or saving throws, so it doesn't matter. It doesn't at all. It's weird that they even mention it. But Thaumaturgy is one of the variants of Prestidigitation. This is Prestidigitation for clerics and paladins, so it's nice to have. Yeah, it's the Divine Spell List Utility Knife spell. And any spell I get for free is a boon in my book. Now, neither of these are ones to write home about. Fiendish Legacy is what will make or break tieflings. At the top of our tiefling discussion, I mentioned that they were the infernal race, and that while that was true, there were extra steps. Here we come to the extra steps. In D&D, infernal specifically refers to the extra-dimensional hells, which is historically, as far as D&D is concerned, where tieflings are from. Now, they have the ability to hail from other planes, The Hells being, of course, the lawful evil planes, but there are also chaotic evil planes and neutral evil planes, like the Abyss. And you can be an Abyssal Tiefling now, as well as a Chthonic Tiefling. And depending on which of those choices you make, you are going to have some options available to you that are unique to that specific legacy. It's basically lineages for any of the other species, just redefined here, rebranded as your fiendish legacy. Each legacy is going to follow the same formula. Whichever one you choose, you are going to have a new cantrip, a new first level spell when you reach third level, a new second level spell when you reach fifth level, and you're going to gain innate resistance to a particular type of damage. Now, while tieflings don't get as many bonuses as the elves do, I like these spells better, (laughs) and I like getting a free damage resistance to carry with me from first level all the way through the game. Yeah, damage resistances are some of the rarer things to get. In fact, there's only a couple of species, races in 5th edition, that get innate damage resistance. And tieflings were one of them, and they were resistant to fire damage. Now you have an option to change that, to gain resistance to another type. Something that is even harder to access, even more unique than it was before. So as a quick overview of those options, if you choose to be an Abyssal Legacy Tiefling, you're going to have the Poison Spray Cantrip, and you're going to have resistance to poison damage. Those are things you get immediately upon creation at first level. When you get to third level, you'll gain the Ray of Sickness spell, and at fifth level, you'll gain access to Hold Person. Those are some pretty strong choices. Now, admittedly, the Poison Spray Cantrip is fairly underwhelming, but if you can get to third or fifth level, that really starts to balance out. I like this from a theme standpoint. The Abyssal Plains are where demons are from, creatures of chaotic evil and raw energy, wrath, and anger. Poison is pretty commonly associated with them, as is debilitating 
their prey, weakening them before they close in for the kill. So being resistant to a common type of damage in the Abyss, being able to utilize a common type of damage in the Abyss, and at 5th level being able to paralyze your opponent, incapacitate them before you move in for a guaranteed crit. This is some good theming, not to mention good mechanics. And the mechanics certainly do have a lot to appreciate. In fact, of the three choices, I would argue that potentially the Abyssal is the strongest. It's certainly my favorite out of the options, at least from a very general sense. I'll, Just because you get hold person, you like that It's because I get hold person. It comes up a lot. <laughs> Maybe that's because I tend to get into fights with other humanoids in my games. <laughs> <laughs> you know, a lot of bad city encounters and things. But I do like the Infernal Legacy as well because they get resistance to fire damage and that's going to come up a lot. And they get the Fire Bolt Cantrip, which maybe we didn't fall in the same place on that one, but it's still one of my favorites, even if I do have to admit that there are some stronger options out there. Infernal Tieflings will also get Hellish Rebuke and the Darkness Spell as they get their third and fifth level ups. And Depending on your build, access to the Darkness spell can be very strong. So maybe not as universally applicable as the Abyssal spells, but in the right hands, it can be even stronger. Yep, this is basically Tiefling Classic from 5th edition. We're used to seeing Tieflings with access to Hellish Rebuke and Darkness and Resistance to Fire Damage. The bonus of the Firebolt Cantrip, in addition to Thaumaturgy, which now is available for all Tieflings is a great little bonus, and it really slides into the theme. The Infernal Planes, most of them are known as the the traditional Inferno. They are hot rivers of lava, constant screaming and agony and whatnot. This is very much on brand for the typical little horned, trident-wielding devil man, which is kind of where the tiefling idea came from at its inception. Finally, we have the Chthonic Tiefling. As opposed to the others, these will gain resistance to necrotic damage and will gain the Chill Touch cantrip, which I believe was our choice for the best non-class-locked damaging ranged cantrip. Am I right about that? I think I'm right about that. That's a lot of qualifiers, but... (laughs) I like it. When Rob and I spoke about it, I believe that we decided that it edged out Ray of Frost and Firebolt and some of the other comparable ones thanks to its utility. So, good choice there. And then as they level up, they will gain access to the False Life spell, which will provide them with some temporary hit points on demand, and of course, Ray of Enfeeblement at 5th level. So the Chthonic legacy is all about life energy, and they're coming from neutral evil planes. So resistance to life-bending deadly magic makes good sense for them, and they wield it with the Chill Touch cantrip. False Life gives them a little bit of a buffer against death, a source of temporary vitality and Ray of Enfeeblement saps the strength of their opponents. I like the theme, but I don't like the Ray of Enfeeblement spell. It doesn't (laughs) stack up to Darkness or Hold Person in my mind. It doesn't even deal any damage for a second level spell, something you're looking forward to getting at fifth level. It just makes your opponent deal half damage if they're using strength as their ability score modifier when they're making their attacks. Against certain enemies, it's a big deal. If you're fighting fire giants, This is great. If you're fighting something else, it's worthless, and you're going to be sad that you have it. So Chthonic Tieflings get a harder-to-access damage resistance, a slightly better and more damaging cantrip with a little bit of utility, and they get all of that at level 1, but at 5th level they start to even out a little bit with the other ones, it sounds like. I will note that 
just like with elves and gnomes and all of those other species that get spell casting as one of their special traits, all of these spells can be cast once per long rest for absolutely free. And all of these spells are added to your spell list if you are a spellcaster. Similarly, for these spells tied to your heritage, you can pick the spellcasting ability for them. It doesn't matter if you are a wizard or a sorcerer or a warlock or a druid. As a tiefling, you can use your most effective ability score when you're casting these spells. These spells actually have two hit modifiers. These spells actually have saving throws. Now <laughs> it matters. And again, I really like the way that they're handling this. They're giving you access to new spells. They're giving you a couple of free uses. Even if you don't have options about what spells you're going to select, the fact that they are giving them to you and they're giving them to you for free, not just the ability to know the spell, but also to cast it without any sort of restrictions, is appreciated. So, tieflings in 1 and I don't know that you have played a tiefling in 5e, but looking at 1 and do you feel more or less excited to play one? I feel like I've seen memes online. I can't think of the name of this comic strip that I followed once upon a time where a party of all tieflings made fun of the one human fighter that came into it for being too basic. I've always felt like tieflings were just such a gosh darn popular choice just because everyone felt like they were edgy and cool. So uh, I kind of categorically have avoided playing any tieflings. Uh, I will take my Asimar. Thank you. Wasn't your first character an elf? Yeah, there's an elf. <laughs> you know, oddly enough, in the circles that I run with, I don't see a lot of elves being played. Hmm. Yeah, weird, right? Fifth edition is completely oversaturated with races at the moment, and most of them, I think, are pretty stupid. <laughs> I have less than zero interest in playing them, and I don't like trying to justify them being in my worlds half the time. So, yeah, I, I'm glad that we're kind of paring it back down. I hope we don't get so inflated again. I would rather focus on building the lore and options for the races we have, races like the ones we've already discussed, rather than trying to come up with new races with flimsy lore and poor mechanics. On the subject of races that you find narratively thin, bland, uninteresting, and probably never going to play and not interested in justifying why they exist in your world, let's move on to the all-new race that has been provided to us in 1D&D, the Ardling. Okay. Uh, <laughs> do you want to take a swing before I do? <laughs> oh, no, no, no. You go ahead. I can beat the horse once you're done, or in this case, the horse-faced angel because that's basically what Ardlings are, I think. Yeah, so before I start digging into it, I see where they were coming from. I love that D&D has its roots in real-world religions and mythology, even though that can get a bit sticky at times. There is a lot of precedent in our own history of divine beings with the faces of beasts. Look no further than ancient Egypt, right? Right, Sobek, Anubis, Ra, Horus. So much precedent for this. Well, now, we can't talk about Horus. This is a family show. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, I see what they were trying to do. I'm glad that they were trying to incorporate this. I think this probably belongs in the Monster Manual, not in a new version of the Player's Handbook. We already have a divine race. We have the Asimar, and they are divine, angelic, humanoid beings. And I love them, and don't step on their turf, okay? I mean, they're good, and they occupied a space that was formerly vacant. And all of the races that we've talked about so far here have been 
wholly unique, right? And even though 5th edition came out with a bunch of different versions of animal people that felt kind of redundant just because they were still animal people, just a different animal, all the races we've talked about in these two episodes occupy a space in virtually every world. To include the things that exist in D&D from the monster manual point, from the world building point, these kinds of things should be around. And Ardlings just don't quite have that spot. And they're kind of playing in the Asimar's turf, which I'm, by the way, very sad was not included yet. I hope it makes it into whatever the next version of the player's handbook that we get will be by the end of things. Me too. You know, if you told me that we had a celestial-blooded player character race whose name started with an A included in this material, (laughs) I would have been very, very excited. Yeah, because basically, if you told me that I could include 10, 11, 12 races from 5th edition to become species in one D&D... Asimar would not have waited long to be on that list. It is a priority for me in world building because I plan to have devils and I plan to have demons and I plan to have angels to have humanoid versions of them because there's so much role play opportunity there, but not so much for the Ardlings. Well, hey, Rob, you got dogs in your setting, don't you? Mm, Edward? Well, now finally we have dog people, which is weird because I feel like out of all of the different anthropomorphic races that they have made in D&D so far, what with birds and owls and crows and cats. Yeah, two different kinds of birds, two different kinds of cats. Hippopotamus, elephant. Yes, hippopotamuses, good grief. Dog was strangely absent from that list, and I guess the only redeeming feature of this list of this race is that you can now be a dog-headed person. All right. For those of you who are extremely confused by our conversation thus far, I guess we should explain ourselves. The Ardling is a celestial creature from the extraplanar plane? Yeah, the extraplanar plane known as the Beastlands. And they are basically anthropomorphic animals or possibly just humanoids with the heads of animals. Again, a la ancient Egypt. Their creature type is humanoid. They have a walking speed of 30 feet and they live a very long time, on average about 200 years. This is another race, Rob, that can be medium or small, and I'm going to do my best just to leave it there. Where elves and gnomes may choose their lineage, and tieflings choose their legacy, ardlings choose their ancestry. Wouldn't it be nice if they just made that term uniform? Like, there's no reason it has to be different. No, there's not. That's why I was in favor of subtype. And if anyone at Wizards of the Coast actually reads my survey, which I'm inclined to believe that they do based on their videos, Based on the fact that this is the second version of the Ardling. True. Then they will see that I did prefer the subtype. I know it's clinical, but if you have a creature type, you then have a creature subtype. It just makes sense. The animal ancestry is going to dictate a lot of things about your character. Possibly, most importantly, what shape your head is. Yeah, and with that is the most important thing about your character's race. To be fair to oh, the designers boy. of Wizard of the Coast and the Ardlings that may or may not exist out there, if anyone actually did decide to playtest them, I don't hate what they have designed mechanically, at least not in this newer iteration. Mm. I just don't jive with the Ardling from a conceptual standpoint. But you know what? Now that we've gotten that opinion out of the way, let's talk about what they do. So this is... This this smacks of the shifter races from 5e. You can make yourself very good at a particular thing, usually with some kind of movement involved, based on your animal 
ancestry. This is carrying the bulk of the weight of the Ardling. So this is definitely, from more than an aesthetic standpoint, this is the biggest decision you are going to make as this species. Your options are climber, flyer, racer, and swimmer, which all sound like dog names. <laughs> Can I just say I feel like I've met these dogs. But an Ardling with a dog face does not have the option to be all of them because the type of animal that you represent, the type of animal whose schnoz, whose head is going to be above your neck, is also determined by this selection. So let's go ahead and go down the options, shall we? If you chose the climber ancestry, you may find yourself with the face of a bear, cat, lizard, or squirrel. You will gain a climb speed equal to your movement speed. And when you deal damage with an unarmed strike, you may increase that damage by an amount equal to your proficiency bonus. So, good things here. And first of all, I think that there's probably going to be some wiggle room as to the type of animals whose visage you embody. Uh, at least there would be in my games if I were excited to welcome Ardlings in. But you have more than just the head of these creatures. You have some other physical traits. It could be claws or a tail or something to not only thematically fit with the creature you've chosen, but to justify the climb speed and this extra damage on your unarmed strikes. There seems to be a theme in 1D&D of giving characters easier access to these different types of movement and not making you wait too long about it. So here at first level, if you want to climb speed, this is a really easy way to get it. Furthermore, that extra damage tacked on to your unarmed strikes, there's no cap to how often that can be applied, and it seems to stack with how we understand the monk to work in 5th edition, as well as unarmed fighters or basically anybody fighting without a weapon. So as you start to get access to more attacks and dealing more damage on your turn, you are also increasing your proficiency bonus, and that will amount to a fairly substantial boost to your DPS if you were to choose a climber. I think that is almost more useful in the long run than having the climb speed. This is probably my second favorite of all the options, because, I mean, the climb speed is is good, but the real perk comes here with that unarmed strike ability, because if you think about, say, a monk... As a monk improves, their unarmed strike die is going to increase, okay? But that's still a roll. This improves your unarmed strike by a flat number, meaning that if you were to be a monk who took the climber ancestry, as you leveled up, your unarmed strike would not only improve in its die that gets to be rolled, but also in its numerical bonus. I think that these ancestry choices for the Ardling are going to be very beneficial for very specific builds. And if you're not doing that build, I mean, I was, I was going to ask you, why are you playing an Ardling in the first place? But if you're not doing <laughs> that build, why are you playing an Ardling? <laughs> but yeah, as the options that we have for an Ardling go, Climber's not bad. You can get a lot of use out of it if you plan to get a lot of use out of it. Moving on next to the Flyer Ancestry. If you have this trait, you have Vestigial Wings. Let's just go ahead and stop right there. <laughs> if you have an ancestry called Flyer and your wings are Vestigial, could we not just call it something different? It's, I mean, it's a fair point. It really is mislabeling this. It, it's, making, it's writing a check that it can't cash. Uh, if you are a flyer as an Ardling, you may have the head of a bat, eagle, owl, or raven, or similar creature. If you wanted to be Batman, this is a good way. Or if you always thought Ulkadan from the Soul Calibur games looked really cool, this is, this is the way to do that. With these 
vestigial wings. You cannot ascend very well, but you can use your reaction to safely glide downward from basically any height that would harm you. As long as you're falling at least 10 feet, you're good. And there is no maximum limit to that. You can jump off of anything and land safely. Gliding is such a strong word. This is more like drifting downward. This is just falling with style, okay? <laughs> Gliding in D&D seems to imply that you can achieve some sort of horizontal movement as you go. But no, flyers, I'm doing my air quotes that you can't see, flyers just fall slowly. <laughs> they drop safely. That's their whole shtick. Okay. Yeah, I don't. It doesn't even say that they fall any slower, like feather fall or slow fall. You just drop like a rock, but you're okay at the end. I'm not sure how often this is going to come up in a D and D campaign, and I'm not sure how often you can arrange it because you have no means necessarily of ascending again once you have left whatever scenario you left by falling. But you know, it could come up. I've taken a lot of falling damage in my day, and the. <laughs> Poorly named Flyer Ardling won't have to worry about that. Yeah, this is the one that they made for Marisha Ray, just to make yes. sure that she didn't have to Gosh. go through all that again. You can jump off of cliffs, you can jump off of skyships, you can jump off the back of a dragon. It doesn't matter the height, you will be safe when you hit the ground. And that's really the main perk for doing this. It does have a secondary thing that you can do here. Uh, you may remember that the ability to jump is now an action in 1D&D and flyers may now flap their vestigial wings to gain an advantage on that jump action ability check. You're just not letting that word vestigial go, are you? No, I'm not. Which does directly increase the distance that you're able to jump because the distance in feet that you're able to jump is now equal to the roll that you make on that check. So that's good, he said somewhat reluctantly. <laughs> that It's fine. It's better than not having advantage. It doesn't really hold much of a candle to some of these other abilities that you can get as an Ardling. So I don't know if it's something to really get excited about. I think if you had to be excited about one of these two things, it would probably be the Falling deal. Which, it's kind of weird that the first option, the Climber Ardling, fits so well for a monk. And then the Flyer Ardling is just so redundant for a monk, don't you think? Yeah. I, I don't know what build benefits from this. Is, is the thing like clearly the climber I know what's going to make use of that I don't know what class what build is looking forward to being a flyer it, it's not a build it's just reckless stupidity reckless stupidity needs a flyer <laughs> can I point out and, and this is completely trivial but it, it's bothering me most other races that get access to some kind of limited flight their wings go away yeah right like the Asimar when they turn their flight on they get some spectral wings, they can fly, and they can actually fly, and when the flying is done, they vanish. Yeah, magical wings of light. Yep. And Aarakocra has wings. Real wings. That work. And allow them to fly. They can fly with mm -hmm. them. This poor punk has to walk around permanently being seen by all creation as having wings on its back that it can't really use. This is a penguin of... It's, yeah, it's a penguin. It's a chicken. It's an emu. It's an ostrich. It's the ostrich of player character races. But they give it the face of an eagle, an owl, a raven, or a bat. I just... Eh. It's, eh. it's... This is not good. I don't like this one. All of them are better than this. Not, not They're not very good, but all of them are better than this. <laughs> I think eh 
I think that sound says it best. All right. Next up, we have the racer ancestry. And as you might expect, it means that you get to go faster than people who aren't racers. You can be Sonic the Hedgehog, except you can't because you can't be a hedgehog and be an Ardling at the same time. However, what you can be is a deer, dog, horse, or triceratops. Uh... You know, when I think of creatures that currently or have ever existed on the planet Earth that are fast... I don't know that once has the Triceratops come up in that conversation that I have in my own head. Even among dinosaurs specifically, if you were just trying to find a spot to throw a dinosaur onto this list, Triceratops is not the fast one. We got raptors, man. Velociraptors. Velasa is in the name. <laughs> I, I had to mention this in the survey. I just like, why is Triceratops here? This is a fine thing, and I get that you're trying to give them, like, four options for all the different things. Can we just go ahead and say, like, cheetah or something, you know? Right? That would obvious oversight. I, I'm just making a mental list of all of the animals that I would have accepted before Triceratops. <laughs> okay. Just so we don't stay on this forever, because I think I could. I will say, actually, before we go on, out of all of these different creatures, I'm a little interested in playing a deer-themed humanoid. I like antlers. I think that's a good, that's an interesting look. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess because when I played Skyrim, you can be a Bosmer with with horns, and the Bosmer is also fast. Yeah, and, so. and the uh, the Forsworn with their headgear and their antler, I thought that they looked cool. Okay. In- interesting design choice aside, yes. <laughs> As a racer, Ardling, when you dash, you get extra speed, and that speed equals 10 times your proficiency bonus. At a start, that's going to be an extra... 20 feet of movement speed. That is going to be 50 for an Ardling. As you level up, the proficiency bonus will eventually hit a level 6. That'll be an additional 60 feet of movement speed. That is as high as it will go. That is, I mean, that's a pretty good range. If you are going to be dashing a lot, which, I mean, in all fairness, and, and this was a note that I made. I'm always dashing. <laughs> this is a note that I made. I only dash when I have to. I'm never looking for the opportunity to dash. That is not the point of my turn. That's not the thing I'm excited to do. I'm usually dashing to get somewhere to do something. And I would rather get a bonus to the thing that I'm trying to do, not to the trying to get there. But when you do need to use the dash action, this is an unlimited resource. You can do it as often as you like, as long as you are taking the dash action, and you will be speedy forever. Yeah, that increase that you get when you take the dash action is just huge. You know, let's say, let's just pretend that there was a race out there that had a base walking speed of 30 feet, you know, (laughs) just for the sake of argument. At level one, they could dash to gain an additional 50 feet of movement speed. And as they level up, that can increase to an additional 90 feet of movement speed. There are situations where moving just a ton can be incredibly useful. Like if you take that new spell from Fizbins, I think it's like a Shardalon Stride or something like that that says anyone that you run past takes fire damage. If you can run more, you can damage more things. And then it actually ends up being crazy good. So I think this is just another example of an Ardling having some options that are very niche. They're going to be very powerful in the right situation, on the right character, in the right hands. You can set them up to do a certain thing incredibly well, but maybe their appeal isn't as universal. Yeah. Most classes or character concepts aren't going to benefit from this in a consistent and meaningful way. This is going to look real good on any 
character that can dash as a bonus action. That's true, yes. Rogues have a lot to gain from this. Uh, can monks do that too? In 5e, monks can. So I'm ex- I'm expecting so. And I think there will be other ways to get access to this, probably feats and magic items even. So it's going to be powerful, and it's going to not just be powerful, it's going to be broken at certain times, but not in a way that, again, not in a way that excites me. Not every way to break the game is created equal, and moving fast is not one of those ways for me. But, you know, hey, could be worse. It could be flyer. (laughs) Finally, we have the swimmer ancestry. The swimmers might have faces of crocodiles, dolphins, frogs, or sharks. Okay, at least this list makes sense. None of these are appealing. <laughs> They're, you know what? They might not be. I mean, a, a shark-faced adventurer? I just, I don't even know. Anyway, I, I'm not going to get locked in on that because at least all of these are animals that swim. You know, they don't have vestigial gills or blowholes or things like that because swimmers can all hold their breath for up to an hour at a time and all gain a swim speed equal to their base walking speed. So far, I like this better than climber because I think that having a swim speed is more important than having a climb speed because not having a swim speed is debilitating in underwater combat in a way that fighting on the side of something steep or on the side of a wall just frankly isn't. But that's the next part that I get really excited about that I think may actually make this the best option out of all of them. That, of course, being the fact that a swimmer gets cold resistance. This is unique thus far. We haven't seen another race that has the opportunity to have cold resistance, even though the tiefling was resistant to several things, depending on their legacy. So having that as an option here, nice. Tick. Good. Adding that to the swim speed and the holding your breath, also good. It almost justifies having the head of a crocodile. Almost. I'm not really sure why a swimmer would have resistance to cold damage. It's not like they said you get the face of a penguin. (laughs) You know, like a crocodile is a freaking cold-blooded animal. I think it's meant to imply uh, the cold depths of the ocean. You know, places that you could probably not be swimming down to in the course of an average D&D adventure. But your body is presumably acclimated to it, so you're good. Well, that wraps up the animal ancestry, but that doesn't mean that we're done with the Ardling, because in addition to those, they also get divine magic. Just like with the tieflings, they get access to the thaumaturgy spell. But unlike tieflings, they can replace that with another cantrip from the divine spell list. This is basically what the High Elf Legacy got access to for the elves with their access to the Prestidigitation cantrip. You start with one, and you can swap it out whenever you take a nap. And again, I would really rather this just read, you get one cantrip from the divine spell list, but uh, that's just my particular preference. Either way, a bonus cantrip, not bad. And these magical divine beings have not been incredibly magical up to this point, so it's nice that they get something. And as their final trait, yeah, I know, right? It's only three. They're just really long and complicated. At least the final one is simple. They gain proficiency in the perception skill, thanks to their keen animal senses. And they're biting off the elves again. Free cantrip and perception. Uh, again, this is this feels copy-pasted. It's biting the Asimar in terms of flavor. It's biting the elf in terms of mechanics. And arguably, I like the elf better than this. I mean, I'm pretty sure that everyone would, uh, except for the people that this was designed for, which 
I mean, can we just go ahead and say that we just needed another furry race in D&D? Is that what this is? <laughs> there is a lot of excitement. At least, I don't, I'm not even completely sure about the community, but there's a lot of excitement on Wizards of the Coast part to have beast people in D&D. And they gave us all of these different classic races. They gave us hobbits, halflings rather, dwarves, elves, humans, devil people. And I guess rather than try and choose a single one of the beast races to come over into 1D&D and be available at the outset, they just kind of smushed them all into one brown blob of Play-Doh that really doesn't appeal to me. Yeah, I mean, I, I jest when I say that they needed another race to appeal to that demographic, because honestly, there was there was plenty already to appeal to that demographic here. I just, I'm not sure what they were trying to achieve. You know, like, did the Beastlands really need to be that well represented? That they need to add the Ardlings as a playable race, and that they need to include them among the very first ones to be released for this new edition of D&D? Uh, I just don't know that there was demand for that, and I would have maybe preferred to see something not this. But as far as how it's being implemented, it's being implemented fine. This is a fine set of abilities and traits. I really don't have many complaints about it, except for, you know, the thematic ones, and some of the animal heads just don't sit well with me. I am both curious and hate to ask to see art of a shark-faced angel i think that was a fair question that you briefly broached and it's one that i've been pondering as well is who is this for who couldn't wait to have the ardling race we overlooked better races with deeper lore with more unique mechanics and much more exciting flavors and themes to have this ardling here not once but twice in the DD playtest content feel like we didn't need to fix the Ardling. We needed to junk the Ardling <laughs> and bring in the Asimar or bring in the Tabaxi. If we really wanted one of the bestial characters from 5e to come in, the Tabaxi was a home run, man. I Like, no notes on that thing. So, I don't know. Maybe I will warm to this over time. I tend to cool my jets on many things that I dislike as we after we record these episodes. But this is the first one that I just don't like. Let's just go ahead and move on from the Ardling to something that we are more excited to talk about, a race that deserves to be included in the initial release of 1D&D, and quite frankly, desperately needed a rework from the original one we were presented with in that first Unearthed Arcana. We come finally to Dragonborn. Dragonborn! There is one they fear! No, just kidding. Anyway, um... The Dragonborn was the very first race that I played in 5th edition. They were not only the first character that you played, they were the first race presented in the D&D Player's Handbook. They were the first thing people saw when they opened up these books to learn how to play the game. If they weren't iconic before, they're iconic now. There is a lot to love here and also a lot of missed opportunities. And there was also a lot of consulting charts because things weren't very consistent as far as how the different Draconic Ancestries were covered. And they have been written and rewritten and modified, and so many different subtypes of this race have been presented over the years as Wizards of the Coast has tried to get them right. Honestly, in terms of balance, I think this is as close as they've come. I think they eventually overcompensated in 5e, and I think they pulled it back into a good place. 
Let's take a look at how they address those issues and what we now have at this stage of their development process. Dragonborn are medium humanoid creatures with the obligatory walking speed of 30 feet and an average lifespan of 80 years, just like humans. Dragonborn's most defining feature is their draconic ancestry. Depending on which setting you're playing in, the Dragonborn race was either the progeny of dragons or a creation of theirs. They're either literally or figuratively molded by the dragons who came before them. As such, they're going to share a lot of things in common with the dragons who sired them. They are quite literally made in their image one way or another. So your Dragonborn's Draconic Ancestor is going to not only determine the color of their scales, but also the type of damage that they are resistant to and the type of damage that their Breath Weapon, yes, Breath Weapon is still here and quite new and improved, is going to deal. And we have limited it back to the classic options, chromatic and metallic dragons. In my opinion, the only ones we ever needed. <laughs> so dragonborn that are descended from a silver or white dragon will be associated with cold damage. Those who are associated with fire damage will likely be descended from brass, gold, or red dragons. Blue and bronze dragonborn will both be associated with lightning, just like black and copper dragonborn will be associated with acid, and green dragons are unique in that they and their dragonborn descendants will be associated with poison damage. All of that is important, but none of that is new. The damage types and their associated scale colors are pretty standard throughout D&D. What has changed for Dragonborn is basically everything else about them. First of all, formerly the shape of the breath weapon as well as the elemental damage type was determined by your heritage. Now you have options. You can situationally shape your breath weapon into either a cone or a line, depending on the situation that you're in and the targets you're trying to hit. Options. That in and of itself is a big positive change. I really like having options whenever they're presented with me. And it, the lines are kind of hard to use when they come up. So most of the time you're gonna be wanting to use that cone and being pigeonholed in fifth edition to exclusively being able to make use of that line, it didn't feel very good. but. Man, when you can take advantage of it, now that it's an option instead of a mandatory shape for your breath weapon, that's going to be really fun. I'm actually pretty excited about the line. I spend a lot of my time playing D&D in dungeons, in corridors, and hallways. So the fact that I can spit something in a narrow passage twice as far will hit a lot more people in a lot of the situations I've been in. And how will you affect people with your breath weapon, Rob? That's the next point on our list, because in 5th edition, it was more or less 50-50 between forcing your enemy to make a dexterity saving throw and a constitution saving throw. In 1D&D, that has been standardized to a dexterity saving throw every time. Less charts to consult feels pretty good. But even with these two, I would argue, out-and-out -out improvements... That is still not the most significant or exciting change about the Dragonborn's breath weapon, because in 5th edition it would take your action to spit hot fire to <laughs> execute your breath weapon and hit an area in front of you. This was damning when you were playing classes that were well-suited to the Dragonborn, who were strong and charismatic, like a paladin who gets multiple attacks per turn, and who can smite on those attacks. Using this breath weapon was not advantageous from a damage standpoint. Once you hit 5th level and got 2 attacks, it was quickly eclipsed. 
And so you didn't see a lot of Dragonborns using this racial feature as you went into higher levels. But now, my, how the turns have tabled. It feels like the designers of 1D&D were really compensating for something because they drastically improved how it's implemented. Now, instead of taking an action on your turn to use it, it now simply replaces an attack when you take the attack action. While for some builds, that's effectively the same as saying you get to do this as an action, for many classes in the game who get the extra attack feature, this now means that you can make a weapon attack and use your breath weapon on the same turn. Hallelujah! But it doesn't end there! They have increased the damage of the breath weapon. Sure, it only starts at 1d10 at level 1, but as you level, it's going to scale as though it were a cantrip. At 5th level, it becomes 2d10, 11th level, 3d10, and 17th level, 4d10. It scales just like a cantrip, adding an additional damage die when you reach these level thresholds. And don't forget, this is in an area. This isn't increasing like Booming Blade or Firebolt, which is only ever going to affect a single target. You're hitting everyone within a 15-foot cone or a 30-foot line with this. But wait, there's more! There's still more! In 5th edition, a Dragonborn could only use their breath weapon once per short rest. That means once per encounter. Period. Finito. Done. And no mas. Now, it is tied to your proficiency bonus, as so many things are in 1D&D. You don't restore your uses until you finish a long rest, so there is a different reset condition, but it gives you the opportunity to use this multiple times in the single combat, while targets are still in relatively similar situations and really pump out damage. So, to recap, you are using this in tandem with your normal attacks. If you get multiple, you get multiple. You can use this multiple times in the same encounter. You can shape it to the particular situation that you are in, and it hurts more on average. I think Breath Weapon is better. Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. It'll do. But in all seriousness, I think that this is the breath weapon that we deserved in 5th edition and didn't get. Yeah, this was an obvious choice. I don't know how we didn't see this coming. I don't know how we didn't fix exactly this sooner. It, it feels like a, a facepalm moment, you know? Yeah, I like the consistency of having it always affect the same saving throw. I like the versatility that is offered by allowing it to be reshaped. And I like the power that comes from the increasing damage die and the better action economy of using it. There's absolutely no complaints. They hit a home run with this one. And this is possibly the first race in 1D&D that I am genuinely excited to play over its 5th edition counterpart. <laughs> now, we have already talked about the damage resistances that come from your Draconic Ancestry, and we've talked about, I think, have we already talked about the fact that Dragonborn get Dark Vision? If we didn't, guess what? Dragonborn get Dark Vision. I mean, that's kind of a big deal, though, because this is the first species that was a race in 5th edition that did not have Dark Vision that has been given it. Oh, yeah, it's been a while since I played a Dragonborn. I forgot that they didn't have that originally. Yeah, this is a change. This is the first time we're changing on a biological level, arguably, how one of the species work for the new edition. I think there were kinds of Dragonborn. I, I haven't looked too closely at Fisbins. I didn't have an exceptionally big interest in that book, and maybe I should have. But I think there were Dragonborn that had Dark Vision, but it was not standard, and it certainly wasn't in the player's handbook. It was not. It looks like the Drakenblood Dragonborn had Dark Vision, as did the Ravenite Dragonborn, which I think were both from uh, Critical Role content. 
Anyway, next up we have the special trait that I expected to be most excited about for the Dragonborn. And even though the breath weapon has shown us such out-and-out improvements, this one might still take the cake for me. The final feature that the Dragonborn are going to get in 1 D&D is Draconic Flight. Yes, flight. And by flight, I mean flight. Not like when we discuss the Ardlings, I mean the ability to lift oneself aloft upon wings and remain there if you so choose. <laughs> this is basically ripped right out of the Asimars playbook, but I'm fine with it. This belongs here. Dragon people need to fly. That I mean, there's three things that you know about the classic dragon. They, they breathe fire, they fly, and they kidnap princesses. That, that's like the big three from like fairy tales, folklore, everything. So the fact that Dragonborn, the humanoid race inspired by and spawned from one way or another dragons, could not do that has been a hole in their lore and in their mechanics for a while. Yes, it's good. Having flight on a player character really changes the game, but more than Aarakocra, more than Asimar, more than anyone, I wanted Dragonborn to have this, and here it is. And this is the correct way to implement it, I think, is to give them access to real flight and then just limit its duration and limit its uses to where you're not giving them the blank check that you give to Aarakocra and Alwyn. Now, let's talk about how this works. Starting at 5th level, you'll be able to channel the magical energy of your Draconic Ancestry to give yourself flight. As a bonus action, you can sprout these spectral wings from your back made of the element with which you are aligned, which, come to think of it, is probably a little weird for those green dragonborn who have poison, poison wings. And acid wings, yeah. yeah. Those wings will last for 10 minutes or until you become incapacitated or until you just decide it's time for them to go away. And you can do this once per long rest. Weirdly not tied to your proficiency bonus. Mm. I think I would have probably actually preferred to have one minute intervals, proficiency bonus number of times. But I think they're setting it up this way to just give it an extra nerf because, you know, flying's good. Well, here's the thing. I love that they don't have it available at first level. The fact that they have left it off till five puts it on the line with learning fly spell at third level. So basically any wizard or sorcerer is going to have access to the same ability at the same time. So having a player character with access to flight at this level, great, good. It doesn't cost them any spell slots. They don't need to be a spell casting class and they have it for a limited amount of time. I don't have a problem with this by any measure. I like it. And it's good that they left it till now. I'm henceforth going to be thinking of this as the fact that between first and fifth level, you're learning to breath bend. You know, not <laughs> as like earth bending and water bending and air bending. You're like, you're just air bending your breath weapon into wings that you can use to fly. Breath bending sounds like Hamon from JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, which I doubt you've seen, and I'm not necessarily recommending you change that. <laughs> But if nothing else, it was a trip I'm glad I went on. The only thing that lures me in to JoJo's Bizarre Adventure is the, is, I don't know if he's like the uncle or the grandpa or something like that, who's just always saying, oh, no, and like all the memes. <laughs> oh, that, my God. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that's the only thing that lures me in. He is. He is the best character before he gets old, and he is the best character after he gets old. He's just the best character. Oh, I, di I didn't even know they had him before he got old. All in all, I think you were right. Of all the race that we presented up till now, this is one that I would genuinely be excited to play. I've only played one Dragonborn before, 
my next might need to be in one D&D. Yeah. We're going to go ahead and give this one two thumbs up. I think we feel the most excited by and the most confident about this design out of all the ones that we've covered so far. But there is still one left to go. That's right. We are in the home stretch. We're ready to talk about the species that was given to us for the very first time in the third playtest packet of Unearthed Arcana. And that is the Goliath species. Oh, yeah. The half-giant race made famous, to me at least, by Grog Strongjaw. <laughs> Glad you actually said the correct last name. So many people get Strongjaw and Stonejaw mixed up. Well done. Now, Goliaths have had a overhaul in 1D&D. They got quite a facelift and a slew of new features that you get to choose from when you're making your Goliath. Let's get those stats out of the way. They are a humanoid creature that is medium in size. Yes, medium, because, you know, they're not quite 10 feet tall yet, so that means that they still count as medium creatures. They have a lifespan of 80 years. That's pretty average for humans. And, of course, they have a base walking speed of 35 feet. Hang on. Does that... Does that... That's at 35 feet. Now that is something because no species presented so far has been this swift by default. You have to play one particular lineage of elf to match this, but Goliaths get it for free, no questions asked. Yes, the only race that we have been given so far that gets a 35 foot walking speed across the board. Short races might not be slow, but by God, at least the tall races can be fast. There is some justice in the world, even if it is not unilateral. By the way, Goliaths, Goliaths weren't that fast in 5e. So this is, this is a step up. I mean, a long stride up from 5th uh -huh. edition, where Goliaths had much longer legs than everyone else, but they didn't use them any better. Oddly, where we pulled up the speed of smaller creatures for 1D&D, and there's nobody with the 25-foot move speed anymore... We have given the Goliath the leg up that it needed. One small step for Goliath, one giant leap for anyone else. <laughs> and the changes don't stop there. Basically, everything that was true about Goliaths has been changed in some way. And nothing more so than what was Stone's Endurance in 5th edition. Goliaths in 5e were very strongly based upon Stone Giants in particular. And so... They had a feature called Stone's Endurance that was based on stone giants that made them more resilient when they had to take damage. But stone giants aren't the only type of giant out there. They're not even necessarily the most interesting type. And now we get to diversify. Yeah, in 5th edition, those stone giants really got around. But in 1D&D... The rest of the giants are getting in on this whole mating with humans thing, and we can represent their heritage here as well. And depending on the ancestry of the giants that they're descended from, each Goliath is going to have a unique feature that expresses that heritage and gives them a mechanical benefit that are, by and large, entirely unique to their race. Like, difficult, if even possible, to replicate using any other existing mechanics from 5th edition. We're going to go ahead and go over the list of these for you real quick. Just bear in mind that as we go over these different options, that as so many things are in 1D&D, each of these is going to be usable a number of times equal to your proficiency bonus per long rest. All right, let's get into this. I like giants. Let's go ahead and get that out of the way. So I'm really excited about these. Cloud giants in Dungeons & Dragons are jesters and magicians. They're more tightly tied to magic 
than any of the other different types of cloud giants. They're they're basically Loki analogs in D&D. And the trait that they get bespeaks that. As a bonus action, they can teleport up to 30 feet to a space they can see. This is this is Misty Step. Who doesn't love a free Misty Step? If there were three words that I could string together that would excite me no matter what race or class I was playing in D&D, it would probably be bonus action teleport. <laughs> and that's exactly what the Cloud Giant gets to do. Now, this ability has manifested in a couple of other races and a couple of other feats throughout 5e's publication history. Uh, off the top of my head, I know that Astral Elves have gained this ability in recent past. Eladrins have something similar. The Shatter Kai actually have an improved version of this called Raven Queen's Blessing. But I'm not going to complain because it's one of my favorite features about each of those races. And so having it once again here with Goliaths, yeah, no complaints. It's a good thing that is maybe a little bit less unique, but in no way less versatile and in no way less useful. Oh yeah, whether you're trying to close the distance to an enemy, whether you're trying to get away from a dangerous situation, or whether you're just trying to traverse a tricky environment, this is always good. It's ne there's no level of play where this is not going to be useful. And you're getting it at level one. After that, we're going to move on to fire giants. Everybody knows fire giants. These are the big smiths, the forgers. They live in volcanoes and have flaming beards. And uh, these guys are awesome. So if you have a fire giant ancestry as a Goliath, you have the option to deal fire damage when you strike a creature with an attack roll to the tune of an additional d10 on top of whatever that attack would normally deal. Right, so this is basically just like an itty-bitty tiny baby smite, <laughs> right? You have to hit someone in order to do it, but you can do it in melee or you can do it in range. It's just putting a little, I, I hate to use this phrase, but it's just basically just putting a little stank on something, you know? Yeah, it's basically a free firebolt tied onto something that you are already doing. And since you can do it multiple times as based on your proficiency bonus, this is going to come up plenty of times. I mean, unless you just cannot hit somebody to save your life, perhaps literally, you are going to be dealing this. And it's worth noting that this is the largest additional damage available to any species we have covered so far, dealing a bonus onto an attack. Now, of course, the Climber Ardling gets to add their proficiency bonus, which will never quite equal a d10, but they get to do it every time they hit with an unarmed strike. Here, it doesn't matter what you're attacking with, you still have to roll for it. It's a different damage type, but it's a bigger number. The biggest one that we have come across or will come across as we go through. True, and for those people out there who are interested in power gaming a little bit, you know, having some sort of Nova build, if you do get extra attacks, you can use this on each of those attacks up until you run out of them, meaning that your burst damage can get pretty crazy if you're building for it. Also, I think that Fire Ancestry Goliaths can have flaming beards. Just going to put that, I think that's cool. Just throw that in there somewhere. So if you're playing in Rob's game, enjoy that too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is weird though, you know, because Goliaths are traditionally hairless, I guess. Yeah. So, you know, that that's what made Grog special. Which, they come from cold environments. That seems bad, right? Like you would want to have some kind of protective layer, as it were. Anyway, on the opposite end of the spectrum, we have Frost Giant Heritage. These guys are very inspired by the Jotun from Norse mythology. These are the frost giants. 
They are badasses, they like beating things, they like hitting them with large weapons, and they are used to very frigid environments. Here, you basically kind of get the opposite end of the fire giant coin here. Frost chill means that when you hit and target with an attack roll and deal damage to it, you can tack on some cold damage to the tune of 1d6, with the added benefit of slowing that target speed by 10 feet for the next round. Which is basically adding Ray of Frost to what you're already doing, isn't it? Yeah. I, think, or I guess Ray of Frost would be like a D8 usually, wouldn't it? But other than that, the effect is the same. Yeah, a little reduced damage die, getting tacked on to an attack roll already. But I like this one more than the Fire's Burn. I like utility. So a little bit of extra damage, but making sure that something that, let's face it, as a Goliath, I'm probably already moving faster than anyway, definitely isn't getting away. Chef's kiss. Next up, we have the Hill's Tumble feature, which is from a Hill Giant Ancestry. When you hit a large or smaller creature with an attack roll and it successfully deals damage, you can knock that target prone. It's a great boon for any sort of melee build. Because whenever the target of your melee attacks is prone, you get advantage on all of those attacks. It's just the gift that keeps on giving. I would never have expected that if you told me about all the different types of giants that a Goliath could be descended from, that I would be sitting here thinking, man, is the hill giant the best one? <laughs> Maybe so. As long as you're a melee combatant, which I mean, it really seems like a Goliath would lean into, right? Yeah, and I would have been with you on that. Hill giants are typically portrayed as dumb, dirty, fat, gluttonous brutes compared to the sophistication and even refined nature of some of the other giants. So the fact that they are just knocking somebody over is good flavor, but it is really nice mechanically to be able to make sure your opponent's not getting away and to give yourself advantage on however many other attacks you were about to make on them. This is solid, and there's no saving throw. They don't have a chance to resist this. All you have to do is hit. Yeah, and that is a recurring feature here. With all the ones that we've discussed so far, if you hit with the attack, this additional effect is automatic. It's solid. When I play a fighter, I love to play a battle master because I like controlling the battlefield and my opponent a little bit while I am doing it. Just swinging my weapon doesn't do it for me. So whether or not I'm a fighter, I'm taking one of my favorite battle maneuvers, the tripping attack, and stapling it on to my Goliath. No complaints. Love it. Just two more to go. And next we come to Stone's Endurance. Guess what? This is the one from the 5e Goliath. It states that when you take damage, you can use reaction to reduce that damage by a d12 plus your constitution modifier. While this one does expend a new resource in the form of your reaction, uh, meaning that it would be unavailable to do things like take opportunity attacks and the like, that is a pretty clutch effect. And despite the fact that you can't double it up and use it multiple times around, or have those D12s stack on top of one another, just the fact that you have something that's going to keep you in the fight a little longer is incredibly useful, especially if you go the very well-trod path of being a Goliath Barbarian. Right. A D12 is the largest hit die in the game. And since you also get to tack your constitution modifier onto the number at level 1, you could reduce something that would take out all of your hit points and basically negate the damage. And that is a best case scenario. You are capable of reducing more damage than you may have as a different class <laughs> at first level. And at higher levels, while the value that you are decreasing the damage by 
is unlikely to increase by a drastic amount, you're able to do it up to six times per long rest. That can really be a game changer. Oh, and if you're a barbarian too and you're raging and you're already stretching the value of your hit points by decreasing all the damage that's coming in, that's a big difference. Exactly what I was thinking. Yeah, I just I was just thinking in terms of the barbarian's bigger hit die. That's a really good point. Now, finally, we come to the last one on the list, the Storm's Thunder featured for the Goliaths who are descended from Storm Giants. This one offers a entirely unique effect that I did not fully appreciate at first glance. It states that when you take damage from a creature within 60 feet of you, you can use your reaction to deal 1d8 thunder damage to that creature. This is pretty solid, not gonna lie. It's smacks of Hellish Rebuke, which is a great spell to have handy, and using this version wouldn't cost you any spell slots. Storm Giants in D&D are the head of the Ordning. They are the classiest, most noble giants that are out there. They live beneath the seas and have command over storms and lightning, and being able to basically hurl a Zeus's thunderbolt that unerringly strikes their target, pretty damn cool. Yeah, my favorite part about this is the fact that there is no roll required whatsoever, other than damage, of course. If you decide something gets smote, it gets smote. (laughs) (laughs) And that is the only logical thing that can happen to it for it daring to try to strike you. Yeah, this is (laughs) as accurate as a magic missile, baby. It's going to hit you. And as we covered episodes ago, thunder damage, not a bad type of damage to deal to your enemies. Yeah, I think it was, what, my, my fourth favorite? Or possibly even third. We have now finished with the ancestry specific features. All good options. And we move on to those that apply to all Goliaths, regardless of who they are descended from. And first on that list is starting at fifth level, they gain the ability to supernaturally grow to a large size. Using your bonus action and lasting for 10 minutes, you will occupy the space of a large creature and have advantage on all strength checks and have your speed further increased by an additional 10 feet and you can do this once per long rest. This sounds a lot like one of the runes that the Rune Knight Fighter has access to, and I've seen it used in 5th edition to great effect. Yeah, this this one is good. First of all, I like, A, that this is not available until 5th level. I like it when species level up, if that makes any sense. Like, I like that there are things to look forward to, even in the race that I chose at 1st level, especially when it's something worth the wait. And an extra 30% added on to my movement speed, advantage on my strength checks, and commanding a bigger piece of the battlefield. All things I like. And to be able to do it for such a long time, definitely a tick in its column. And I just like that the race has things to do with its bonus action. Especially for a species that is going to fit so well with martial classes, with melee classes that often struggle to find a use for their bonus actions, it's just a nice touch. Agreed. Now, for the last feature we are going to discuss today, the Goliath's powerful build. Goliaths have advantage on any saving throw made to end the grappled condition on themselves, which I don't know if you remember this from when we discussed how grappled condition works in 1D&D 6th edition. Now, instead of being a contested check like it was in 5th edition, it is a saving throw made at the end of every turn meaning that the Goliath will now make that save at advantage at the end of every turn that they are successfully grappled. 
Aside from that awesome grappling feature, you also count as one size larger when determining your carrying capacity, as well as the amount that you can push, drag, or lift. Okay, so, so I like the grappled thing. I have nothing to add. I'm not going to talk about it. This counting as one size larger on the heels of our discussion of being able to take a large form every 10 minutes, those stack. That's compatible. You can treat yourself as a huge creature for 10 minutes, somewhere between two and six times per long rest for the purposes of pushing, lifting, or dragging. That is ridiculous. That is awesome. (laughs) (laughs) You are going to be able to really accomplish some things that I probably wouldn't allow most creatures, most player characters to roll for in my games. But a Goliath in their large form is going to be capable of some stuff. And with that, our discussion regarding the species of the 1D&D playtest material has come to a close. Before we toss this out to the audience, Rob, what was your favorite out of all the ones that we've been presented with so far? So, I mean, I love my gnomes. I think dwarves are going to be pretty interesting with that tremor sense. But frankly, I think we saved the best for last. Goliaths, with all of their varying options with all their provisions for different builds and ideas, and all the opportunities afforded by the large form and the powerful build, as well as just the flavor, and once again, I like giants. And that extended movement speed. All of these things make the Goliath not just an appealing option for one D&D, but a more appealing option than the Goliaths that we have seen before. And that makes me want to play them. Because I've played something similar to this halfling. I've played something similar to this gnome. I've played something similar to this elf. I've not played anything like these Goliaths before. I think for many of the same reasons that you chose Goliath, I would probably have to say that my favorite would be the Dragonborn. Because I have played a Dragonborn before and been occasionally frustrated with some of the ways that it was implemented. And I think that this new version of the Dragonborn fixes all my concerns and then some. Making it possibly the most powerful out of all the races that we've been presented with so far. If I had to pick a second, I'd probably throw it all the way back to basic human. Yeah, it's pretty hard to argue with feats and options. I do like me some feats, and they're just, you know, generically good and generically strong and highly customizable, which I think is exactly the way they were intended to be. I will say there is a strong case to be made for Dragonborn being one of the better species presented here, and it's probably, honestly my personal second choice. And I think it is encouraging that both of our top picks are reworks or new material, that I think they are listening, they are moving forward in a positive direction, and honestly, every time they have given us something new, wholly new for 1 D&D, I'm, I'm excited by it. I would like to take that as a sign of them listening to the feedback that they're getting from the community and giving it an honest effort, a good old college try to improve the game in the ways that we are looking for. If you want to be a part of that process, there will be a link in the description. Once again, not only to the PDFs we've been discussing, but to where you can provide your opinions on this material to Wizards of the Coast and help them make the game that we want to play. So... Listeners, what was your favorite out of all the options that we have been discussing, the ones that have been presented here to us? Do you agree with Rob? Do you agree with me? Or are you here to stand in defense of the apparently underappreciated Ardlings? 
let us know by finding us on social media or by coming to tell us about it on our Discord. What things did we get right? What things did we get wrong? What things did we miss entirely? Just because the episode is over does not mean the discussion has to end. That's why we have these other platforms, so that we can engage with you directly. As of the time of recording, we are finally entirely caught up on the 1D&D playtest content that has currently been released. I don't know when they're coming out with the next. I don't know what to tell you that the next episode is going to be about. So, I guess we will just have to wait and all be surprised for the next episode of Bardic Twinspiration. Catch you then. If you enjoyed this episode and wish to hear more like it, please consider supporting us on Patreon or on Anchor.fm. You can also support us by using code TWINS10, that's T-W-I-N-S-1-0, whenever buying dice or other premium Dungeons & Dragons products from MistyMountainGaming.com or just by sharing us with your friends. If you'd like to join the conversation, please join our community Discord, or reach out to us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Links to all of that below the episode. And hey, in case you don't hear it anywhere else this week, we love you guys. Till next time. We covered a lot of very familiar ground with humans, elves, dwarves, halflings, and some other guys. Gnomes. (laughs) Don't don't leave out my gnomes, bro. You remember Ulkadan? He was your trainer in Soul Calibur 3. He's the guy with the owl head, and you can go and, like, punch him up and learn your combos. I never remembered his name. That's for sure. It's Ulkadan. Okay. (laughs) anyway i spelled it right there he is he showed up on my computer (laughs) poison and acid wings yeah Yeah. uh anyway i digress i digress a lot actually what do cold wings look like i I, I mean like made of snowflakes they have a lifespan of 80 years that's pretty average for human and of course they have a base walking speed of 35 feet hang on does that that's that said 35 feet (laughs) 35 feet, Rob. Because <laughs> I, was, I was trying to do a gag or something, but it doesn't translate over to a... It didn't do very well, so we can add that in. Maybe it'll help, maybe it won't. I think, or I guess Ray of Frost would be like a D8 usually, wouldn't it? But, I mean, the mecha- But other than that, the effect is the same. I think you're right about that, and I'm sad that I didn't catch it. Yeah, you're right. Damn. Woohoo! <laughs>